Coming up in this episode, we may be looking at the Islamic State 2.0. If you take all the places where we're seeing ungoverned space now, North Africa, Sahel, Arabian Peninsula, my guess is over the next two to three years, we will see some sort of next version of ISIS. Former CIA and FBI executive Philip Mudd. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of times that isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With TrueCar, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a true car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive marketplace. Using true car, you can easily find the car you want. True car will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is so you can feel confident. More than 3 million cars have been sold to true car users. And TrueCar users save an average of more than $3,000 off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident buying experience. Some features not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Very graphic situation. San Bernardino. An act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm back, Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows. Hostile nation states. Can inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The Islamic State group is under fire all around the world. It's most obvious in Mosul in Iraq, where a withering Iraqi-led offensive is reducing the organization's operational capability. Also, in Syria, they're under fire, but they seem to be bouncing back. The question is, do they have a second life? And is there likely to be an ISIL 2.0? We asked... Former CIA and former FBI executive with special experience in counterterrorism, Philip Mudd, to answer those questions on this week's program. You look at where ISIS has tried to move in the past couple of years, especially during its height in Iraq and Syria, going back to roughly mid-2014, its effort to gain a foothold in Libya. They're under struggle every place, not only in terms of geography, but loss of leadership, loss of recruits, both European and American security services saying there are fewer recruits going over there. So if you look at what's happens and what's happening in a place like Ohio and, and interpret that to suggest that this is an indication that the ISIS message is succeeding, I would say think again. What it tells me is that ISIS can't figure out how to maintain territory long enough to draw recruits home. So they've got to, in their weakness, say, please act where you are. Please don't come here. This is an indication of weakness, not of strength. What do you make and what do you think about their longevity in terms of you talking about the stress, you're talking about 
the leaks um, of power and money and all of the things that make the organization or any organization sovereign and strong, they don't have any of that security anymore. So what do you make of how long they can last? There are two questions you have to answer about ISIS longevity. Number one is the question of whether ISIS, the group as it's now constituted, can stay solvent. I don't think so. With the amount of pressure they're on from multiple militaries, with the U.S. intelligence capability to eliminate leadership, with the inability to control territory from Turkey, which means that, for example, fewer recruits can come in, with the fact that they've lost ground in what appeared to be their next foothold, Libya, it would be hard to argue that ISIS is on anything but a downturn. Wrong question, though. If you look at the instability across the Middle East in places like the Sinai in Egypt, in places like Yemen, groups like ISIS are like water. They go to places where they can gravitate freely, where there's a lack of internal governance, where there's a lack of capability or will to counter them. So as long as we have that instability in the Middle East, the ISIS idea will continue as an alternative to some of these governments we've seen. ISIS itself, as it stands now, though, I don't think in the short term can survive. And that was my next question. Looking at this organization, looking at where they've come from, looking at what they're capable of, the pressure that's on them, but the fact that they're a resilient organization, do you believe they can survive? What comes after this ISIL group we're familiar with now? I'll take a guess as, a, as an analyst who made a lot, who's made a lot of mistakes over his career, a guess about what we'll see next. Let me give you a couple of characteristics. Characteristic one, look for places where there's a lack of governance. ISIS cannot operate if there's an effective security apparatus that will eliminate leadership and safe haven. Number two, look for a transition from ISIS affiliates who want to attack lo local police stations or the local military, but instead transition with leadership and with time to say we want to attack the head of the snake in Washington or New York or London. I think it takes time to do that. If ISIS gets a foothold in other areas, they may. So that combination of leadership that has the time to look overseas and leadership that has the safe haven to stay away from the clutches of local security services, I think that's the future. Are we going to see an environment like that? If you take all the places where we're seeing ungoverned space now, North Africa, Sahel, Arabian Peninsula, my guess is over the next two to three years, we will see some sort of next version of ISIS because not all these places will remain governed. The U.S. has been battling this kind of activity for a very long time and certainly at a significant level since the 9-11 attacks. Um, what is it that you, if you have the opportunity to address and engage law enforcement and intelligence and security officials and personnel all over the country. What would you tell them about how to deal with what is likely coming? When I'm dividing the, the people I talk to into two categories, those operating overseas against big ISIS and those operating in American communities. In American communities, I think the message is quite simple. Do not confuse being scared with being threatened. We will face periodic attacks in this country, in this current political environment. That appears to people like we have some huge Islamic threat here. We do not. Half a million people have died in this country after 9-11 due to prescription drug overdoses and abuse. Never talked about. We get three people killed in an attack in this country by somebody who claims allegiance to ISIS, and that's viewed as a threat. It's not. It's scary, but it's not a threat. To close, looking overseas, my question to people moving into the Oval Office would be simple. Do you understand the difference 
between groups that threaten overseas, threaten the government in Baghdad, threaten the government in Yemen, and groups that threaten, or slivers of groups that threaten New York or Washington. Be careful about overestimating the threat and getting involved in spaces that where there's a local threat that doesn't really reach, reach American shores. I think that's the caution I would offer. We hear a lot about immigration and a lot of concern about people that we don't know about that are coming from places that, I mean, they may need help. And some of them may obviously be uh, infiltrated by terror groups, etc. How should we process this whole situation? How should people look at immigration and the risk or the possible risk of terrorists being amongst them? We have to make a simple distinction in our own minds and in the public debate. And this is where the president's office comes directly into play, as well as congressional leadership and leadership in the intelligence community. A distinction between what is a threat and what is a subject of political debate. Political debate now suggests that immigration and Islam are a threat. The way to get out of this game, in my judgment, is to ask a simple question. What is your metric? For determining threat, not emotion, not politics. What's your metric? My metric is what affects an American family, particularly a, 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 the child of an American family. And I will tell you, if you stack up immigration, Islamic radicalism, radicalism, the likelihood that a terrorist will infiltrate with immigrants against gangs, drugs, and and uh, other criminal activity in this country, terrorism is a drop in the bucket. So my bottom line is if you want to come to tell me that you're emotionally driven to say Islamists are attacking and we should be afraid, I want to know what's your metric for being afraid because I haven't heard one yet that causes me to have fear. We also spoke to Philip Mudd recently, but on a separate occasion, about the fact that the Islamic State group has boosted its image using its own media operation. We wanted to know how that media would impact its possibilities for the future. I think when you're looking at the problem of the media, there are two ways to look at this. Number one, ISIS is in decline, and some of the media coverage, in my judgment, accelerates that decline because it's circulating across the Islamic world images that show that ISIS is murdering innocents. If you look at the Nice attack, for example, the number of children killed is just appalling. On the other hand, I, I do believe there's a problem here, but it's not a problem related to ISIS. It's a problem related to people who want to express themselves through violence, who claim that they're ISIS, and then who kill 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, in this case, 80 or more people, alleging that they're ISIS members, but in fact, they've got some other grievance, grievance about a family, grievance about an employer. I'm starting to feel that people who are not terrorists are claiming to be terrorists just to look for the validation to conduct a major attack, even if they don't have an ISIS connection. But now that you've mentioned this whole idea of ISIL and its own media, what about the mainstream media? We talked about this, how quite often media are jumping to the, the idea of responsibility before figuring out what the facts are going on with the situation. How does that impact the organization? I do believe we're accelerating, especially just within the past year or two, to the question of who is responsible for these attacks, thinking that we live in the old world where you might have sponsorship by an organization like Al-Qaeda that is clearly linked to the attacker. What I'm saying 
is we're blowing through the question of what the mental state of the individual was when he conducted the, t- the attack. To conduct an attack of terrorism, you've got to have a political intent that involves the murder of innocents for a political purpose. When you're dealing with people who are emotionally disturbed, I think there's a simple question that we have to ask ourselves. Is this person emotionally, uh, mentally capable of making a choice to commit an act of terror? We do this all the time in murder cases. We say, is the person capable of thinking about an act of murder? If not, they go into a separate category that's, that's called deranged. We should do the same thing in terror cases, and we're skipping that step when we try to determine whether an attack is terrorism. I think we have a challenge in the media when we're assessing these attacks because we don't have the capability to step back for a day or two and ask one simple question. What was this person trying to do when they executed the attack? We assume that because it's a target like French Bastille Day and because of the number of victims, therefore it's terrorism. I think we have to ask a simpler question at the outset of any analysis of an attack. Do we understand what's going on through this individual's mind when he conducted that attack? To do that, we have to look at things like who he was talking to, who his friends are, what his state of play is with his family, his wife, his ex-wife, his employer. This is difficult to do in the modern media environment, but I don't understand as a counterterrorism expert how you determine that something is an act of terrorism without understanding what the person was thinking when they murdered people. We've got to slow down a little bit when we assess these operations. Philip Mudd is a former CIA and FBI executive with counterterrorism expertise. And coming up in our next program, NATO trying to figure out the way forward when it comes to terrorism. It's a challenge for us. I, I think um, our, our strength in, in NATO is, is our numbers and our cohesion from, from different countries, but that, that can also create some inertia. Our adversaries in this aspect don't have that particular challenge. You know, if they're a small group of four, they have the agility of four, where we have potentially the agility of thousands. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Okay, face it. You love to binge, you know, on good stuff like cookies, spicy chips, TV shows, and of course, podcasts. Well, that's exactly why Thrilling Tales, the podcast, releases every chapter of its amazing stories on Mondays. So you can binge on the whole thing. So if you need something else to binge on or just something totally entertaining, get Thrilling Tales, the podcast now on the Podcast One app, iTunes, or at PodcastOne.com.